Good morning. All right, I don't, I don't know what uh, everyone's faith tradition is like. I didn't learn this until I was, I don't know, 28 or so, um, but he is risen. Let's do it again. He is risen. Amen and amen. Um, the last chapel before uh, Easter, we spent some time sitting in the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, and afterwards, several people came up and said, please tell me we're going to talk about the resurrection next week. We are going to talk about the resurrection. So uh, this morning, we're going to move through 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, we're not going to do it verse by verse. Instead, we're going to kind of use it as a blueprint for moving through. Um, it's one of the longest uh, and most thorough um, passages where Paul is dealing with the resurrection. Um, and it starts a little bit differently than the tenor with which we just shared. Uh, but let me pray for us first and we'll jump. Uh, Father, thank you that you are our good and gracious God. Thank you, Lord, that we can proclaim that you are risen indeed. Will you now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak the words that you have for us to hear, each to our own hearts, that we might be transformed and be more like Jesus, we pray. In his powerful and beautiful name, amen. So 1 Corinthians 15, <clears throat> Paul is talking uh, about the resurrection, uh, but what raises it is, is an initial doubt. There are some in Corinth who are doubting the resurrection of the dead. And if we look uh, at the resurrection, we can say he is risen, he is risen indeed, and there are implications that abound both past, present, um, and future. Um, but Paul starts with, what if Christ was not raised? And it's a very sobering thought, and it's one worth sitting in for a minute. He starts by saying that if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. Because we're proclaiming a good news of the resurrection of Christ. But if Christ hasn't risen, there is no good news. And preaching becomes totally futile. It becomes telling a story or a fable. It becomes maybe a really good story, but there's no true hope at the end of the story. So our preaching is useless. And your faith, your faith is futile because you are still in your sins and you have no hope of ever being set free. Because the truth is that we are still fallen, broken, sinful. And apart from the victorious resurrection of Jesus, we remain in our sin slaves to sin and self. And Paul says, also those who have died are lost. All of those who have gone before us, family, friends, the church universal, through all of history, those who have had faith, the faith of Abraham, they're gone. They're lost forever. Because reality becomes futile in the sense that we will never be reunited to those who have gone before us. We will never be gathered together as the bride of Christ if Christ hasn't risen. And the resurrection is not. And then Paul also says that our faith only benefits us in this life. If there's no resurrection, then our faith is simply for this life. And if that's the case, 
we are to be pitied more than any person. Be pitied more than all men because we've believed a lie and we've based our hope on something that is as fleeting as picking up a big handful of dust and chucking it into a windstorm. If our faith, sans resurrection is only for now, we are to be pitied more than any people. But then Christ does, or Paul does one of these great, big, beautiful buts. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And with that proclamation comes realities and implications. And the implications are so lovely and so beautiful. And they start with future implications. And Paul begins to talk. And here's one of the primary and first implications that if Christ has been raised from the dead, then we too will be raised from the dead. He is the first fruits. He is the first raised to be followed by those who belong to him. In verse 20, it says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. The beginning of the restoration of all things has taken place with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The eternal new heavens and new earth have literally broken into our reality with the resurrection of Jesus. In his glorified body, Christ is the first fruits from among the dead. And all those who fall asleep in him will rise after him, those who belong to him and those who have faith in him. If Jesus is raised from the dead, we too, by faith in Christ, will be raised from the dead. Well, then the Corinthians ask a question. They say, how are the dead raised and what kind of body then would they have? And Paul says, we will be given new glorified bodies. The body that is sown is perishable. It goes into the grave perishable, but it is raised imperishable. He goes on to say it's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. We are given bodies that are imperishable and glorified. And then this, this little chunk here, I don't hear this often. This is a piece that I sometimes, sometimes think gets glossed over, but hear how beautiful this is as Paul is describing resurrection bodies. He says, not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and stars differ from star in splendor. We will have new glorified bodies. Instead of the idea of resurrection being a fable, if Christ hasn't raised, Christ has been risen from the dead and we too will have bodies like his, glorified, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown perishable, raised imperishable. We will actually be given new creation bodies. Well then, Paul says, in all of this, death will be swallowed forever. Death will be swallowed in victory when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. Then the saying that is written will come true. Death is swallowed up in victory. 
Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The fall is overturned for good and forever, and the sting of death is erased, swallowed by the victory and the glory of the risen Christ. Hallelujah. Amen. Peter calls this a living hope through the resurrection. And that's what we have as followers in the resurrected Christ, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us, whom God is shielding and watching over and protecting until that inheritance is to be revealed at the last day when Christ returns as his glorified self. This is sure hope by virtue of Christ's work. This is sure hope by virtue of the resurrection from the dead. This is why we celebrate Easter. This is why when I say, he is risen, that's why we do that, because of what's to come. But there are also implications for the past. If Christ has risen from the dead, there are implications for the past. Paul says that he died for us according to the scriptures. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead speaks to the future and what will happen, our hope. But it also looks back. The resurrection of Jesus validates God's prophecies, fulfills God's covenants, and speaks to the perfect, ever-loving faithfulness of our living God. If you go all the way back to the promise in Genesis 3, the first gospel, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, Jesus is that seed. He fulfills that prophecy. The Abrahamic covenant, Jesus is the one through whom come descendants and land that Abraham was promised. And he knew, scripture tells us in Hebrews, he knew to look for a heavenly city, an eternal city. And through Christ, the resurrected Christ, that is what comes. He fulfills the Mosaic covenant. Jesus, in his sinless perfection, perfectly fulfills the law of God. He fulfills the Davidic covenant. He is the king who rules on the throne established by God forever. God's word is sure and true and trustworthy. He has always been faithful and always will be faithful. And that faithfulness leads us to this final consideration. It's a very now implication. Um, one, one exercise I like to do, um, and have done it a few times recently, I actually just did it the other day with, with some students. Um, take a whiteboard and we draw a line on the whiteboard and that line is all of history and we divide it in half and we say okay old testament here new testament here say now what are the six most important events in the old testament and the six most important events in the new testament and it's so much fun watching the mental gymnastics and watching them wrestle through, like what are the actual six most important events for salvation history in the old and the six in the new? And then we pare it down. We go down to four in each. And then we go down to three in each. And then we wipe them out. And we sit with one in the old and one in the new. What do you think the one in the old was? Uh, you don't have to answer, just think of it. Um, single most important event for salvation history in the Old Testament in order to tell the story of the gospel that came down to the fall. And the single most important event in the New Testament, the resurrection. And then I ask them, this is an impossible task, right? Like to wipe out one of the two. 
what's the single most important event in all of history? We erase the fall. It's the resurrection. And as such, the resurrection is what I'll call, I don't know, I, I'm not, I wasn't a philosophy student. I'll just call it, I call it a first truth or a highest truth. There are lots of truths that don't require much of us, right? Like there are some truths, oranges are, are juicy, unless it's a really bad gross orange. But oranges, by and large, it's, it's factual. Like it's a truth that they're juicy. But that doesn't require that we eat oranges, like you're not, it's not incumbent upon you to participate in the juiciness of the orange. Fair. But the resurrection is different. The resurrection as a first truth and a highest truth has an authority. It has a privilege. So it can dictate things about other truths. It holds a place where it should make us look to that truth and certain things fall out of that by necessity of the fact that it is the first truth. Um, there's a pastor in New York City who writes a lot of books and preaches a lot, and he talks about this. Um, he says, when it comes to faith in Jesus, modern people have a tendency to begin by asking, does Christianity fit for me? That tends to be the place they start. But he says, if the resurrection happened, then there is a God who created you for himself. And ultimately, yes, Christianity fits you whether you can see it now or not. If he's real and risen, then just like Paul, even though he had done none, even though he had none of the answers to any of his questions, you'll have to say, what would you have me do, Lord? I think that if we were to ask most people in this room, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? And you were to strip everything else away, just this one point, the highest truth, the first truth, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? I'll ask you that now. Don't answer, answer up here, do you? Everything else aside, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? Do you believe that he went into the grave bodily and that by the power of God, he was raised bodily from the grave? That he appeared to the apostles and to others? Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? If you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, then you believe that he is the king and that he is alive. And as the king, he has the right to tell us how to live. He has the right to tell us what is true. He has the right to tell us what to be in love with and what to avoid. How we should view ourselves and others. How we should view our bodies, our desires, our fears, our loves. How we should approach money and possessions, and time, and work. I've been having some conversations recently with some, some recent grads, and it's really interesting because they will assent to the resurrection of Christ and believe that he rose from the dead. 
but then they hold at arm's length what he has to say about certain very specific things in their lives. And what's fascinating as I push and talk, what I'm finding is that they're holding these, these other things at an arm's length and haven't done deep examination of God's word to find out what God actually says. Perhaps they're sitting in echo chambers. Perhaps they're hearing what others say. Perhaps they're reading second or third hand books. These tertiary issues end up becoming primary issues. If you believe that Jesus is risen from the dead, it is incumbent upon us to search and examine and study and ask and seek tirelessly, honestly, humbly, what does God say about everything else? And then to submit to it. Because if he rose from the dead, he's the king. And the king has a whole lot to say about how we live our lives. He has a whole lot to say about what's beautiful. He has a whole lot to say about our creation. And he has it to say to every single one of us. But then, here's the beautiful part. We should do that with the greatest joy in the world because we know that in all of these things, what he offers us are the words of life. Peter knew it, we know it. We look to the teachings and the words of Christ and he offers us that which gives us abundant life in him. What he calls us to, what he has for us is what it means to actually live. Um, before I ever articulated this, the resurrection has always been the linchpin of my faith. I came to faith as a sophomore in college and over the last, gosh, it's been a while now, uh, 20, I call it 32 years-ish, over the last 32 years, when I sit in doubt, when I sit in confusion, the place that I always come back to is the resurrection of Jesus. Do I believe in the deepest core of my being that Jesus rose from the dead? And I do. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So when I'm confused by something I read in the Bible, when I'm confused by the way that the world is unfolding, I know that if there's a problem, that it's not God or his word, it's that I simply don't yet understand. And I trust that in the right time, by the power and grace of God's spirit, He'll reveal what I need to know when I need to know it. Amen? So, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Do you know the hope that the resurrection brings? Do you understand the confidence that the fulfillment of the prophecies and covenants brings in regards to God's faithfulness past and future, we have a faithful king. And finally, now, are you doing or are you ready to assent to that first truth that Jesus has risen and then live honestly 
brain honest and heart honest by seeking what he has to say about everything. About doing the hard work of digging into his word, which is faithful and living and finding out what he actually says about the world and the issues and the heart that swirls. Are you ready to follow the king? Start at that first point. Do I believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And let's do this one more time. He has risen. Amen. Father God, you are gracious beyond compare. And um, I pray that our gratitude would match. Um, uh, can't match your grace, Lord. We're just grateful. Father, will you please press these truths deep into our hearts and our souls, we pray, so that we might glorify you uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit and in Jesus' name.